You're listening to Torah Classes with Rabbi Mendy Goldberg. This class is a recording from a live class. One second. So good evening, good afternoon, good evening already, if it looks dark enough to be evening, but uh, good afternoon. So today we are starting again our classes. We're now in the second Torah reading of the Torah. So hopefully now we'll start and we'll be able to go through a nice uh, part of the book of Genesis and go through the different Torah readings and be able to have a good understanding into the many Torah readings that we come across. This week is the second Torah reading of the Torah, which is Parshas Noach. Last week we started the Torah, which is Parshas Bereshis, the first book of the book of Genesis. And today we continue with the second Torah reading of the book of Genesis. They say a story about a fellow who was a, uh, training the army, the paratroopers. And he's telling the paratroopers their last um, you know, few uh, details of what they need to know before they jump out of the plane. And he says, uh, the guy tells them, okay, I'm going to push you out of the plane, count to five. As soon as you count to five, you pull the trigger, and that will open up your parachute. If that doesn't if that doesn't work, you have a safety clip that you have to pull, and you pull the safety clip, and that will open your parachute. Once you land, there's going to be a bus at the bottom waiting for you to pick you up, and that's going to bring you back to the base, and then you'll be everything will be all right. This one guy gets there, the guy pushes him out of the parachute, counts to five, pulls the trigger, parachute's not opening. Pulls the reserve. The emergency chute, it's not opening. He goes, oh, my luck. There won't even be a bus when I come down there. Mm. So <laughs> we're right now, right in the days, right after the holidays of Tishrei, right after all the holidays, we are, we are on a high. That's why it's called high holidays from the inspiration from Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, Tesukis, and Chastorah. Every day was never a full week in the last month that didn't have a holiday in it. And we're starting off from the holidays that we learned about and we're inspired about the concepts of repentance, getting close to God, and then finally concluding all the holidays with the joy and excitement that comes with Sukkot and Simchas Torah. And all of a sudden now, it's time for us to gather that energy, and as in the Hasidic dictum we say, V'yakiv halach ladarka, in English translated loosely in Jacket the Road, that we take everything that we had from the previous holidays that we inspired ourselves, that we got and collected, and now we have to empty it, so to speak, utilize it for the year ahead. And therefore, as we come into this week's Torah reading, we learn about two episodes in history of humanity, which are maybe not the most pleasant to be discussed, but of course have a lot to teach us in our contemporary application and seeing of how we can behave a little better than the people at that time. So we start off at the beginning of the Torah reading, telling us about the people of the flood. The people at the time after Adam, Cain and Abel, got into a little bit of a rupture there, and then all of a sudden the people start to populate, and there were the giants, and we talk about their thievery and their mistreatment of one another, rape, thievery, and whatever it may be, and God says, okay, time to clean shop, let's start all over again, and the flood happens. Nearly 340 years after the flood, four generations after Noah, there's another group of people that come about in this week's Torah reading and at the end of the Torah reading. And these people were the first ever in history to create, so to speak, something of their own, to utilize nature, to find within science, 
something to create on its own, as we'll soon understand. What they did over here was they made this big, beautiful tower, and as we're going to go into the details of what was the tower about, but at the end of the day, we find that they took this tower, and eventually they wanted to take this tower and, so to speak, utilize it as a change or something that they could combat to uh, up against godliness. God wasn't happy about it, and because of that, ever since then, people have been spread out around the world and different languages have been made at the time. But what was over here? The challenge. What was going on over here? What was the problem about these people? First of all, what were they doing? Seemingly something wonderful. They were going to create something synthetic, something normal, something new. There was rocks, there was earth, and they figured out and made that instead of using rocks, instead of using earth, they were going to create clay, cement, and build this massive tower. This way, that they don't need to use the natural things that exist in the world, they can take their own creation, and this way they have a little bit of a competition towards God. God, you use your stuff, we'll use our stuff, and they can be able to seemingly protect themselves. What was their essential mistake here? Their essential mistake was that everything that God created in the world, including science, is not a challenge to godliness, is not the antithesis to godliness, but on the contrary, complements godliness. Their mistake was that the concept of the world, the entire world, the entire universe was given to the human being. In the words of God, in the book of Genesis, right in the beginning, when God created human beings, multiply and conquer the world. God gives us the world that we should take it, utilize it, and use it for its best, including the scientific advances that come with the world, is our job to utilize it for a godly purpose and to make it into a greater world than it is already. And that was their mistake. They believed that science was a contradiction to God, while in essence, science is a compliment to God. And that's what we're going to analyze today. So let's start from the beginning. As we mentioned, the Torah reading of Noah begins with Noah building the ark. It took him 120 years to build this magnificent, beautiful ark. And the ark that was consisted of three different floors. The bottom floor was the garbage. The middle floor was for family. And the top floor was for the animals. I'm sorry, middle floor for the animals. And the top floor was for his family. And that's the way Noah and his family was charged with becoming zookeepers for almost a year's time. Forty days and nights that flooded the world from above the waters opened and from below the waters came out and the world was being totally destroyed. And all of a sudden, Noah and his family, after a year's time, were told they're allowed to come out of the ark and to repopulate the world again. And as they repopulate the world again, from his three sons, Shem, Ham, and Yafes, they all are living basically all at the same time, all in the same place. And unfortunately, at the end of the time, all of a sudden, at the end of the Torah reading, we come to the story of this Tower of Bavel that they wanted, and it was called Bavel because at that time, what God did was separated the people all over the world, put them in all different languages, and the word Bavel comes like from the word Babel, and they started babbling to one another, meaning they couldn't understand, they were all mixed up, and they had to go into different places. But what happened there? So let's go into the details of that story, and that's what we're going to talk about today. God tells us at the end of the Torah reading, that every single nation all of a sudden were created different nations and different languages. We are all initially, they all grew up in the same home, all grew up in Noach's home. He had three children, Shem, Ham, and Yafes. And all of a sudden, they were now scattered to different corners of the earth, different languages, different nations, different types of communities, different types of methods of feel, feelings, and so on. 
How did that happen? How did it happen that one family all of a sudden became so diverse and so spread out throughout the entire universe? And it tells us about the families of Shem, Cham, and Yafes, where they had children, and they were a beautiful family growing up together. And as they were growing up together, this family eventually ended up into 70 different nations. And the Torah tells us as follows in the beginning of the book of Genesis and the end of this week's Torah reading, that at first, the entire universe was one language, one people, and very few things that they spoke with one another. They then found themselves in the valley, and they said to one another, let us make bricks and build a tower. And they built the bricks in the tower, and we will be able to build this beautiful, big, humongous tower that will go all the way up to heaven. Why? Why did they want to do this, they tell each other? Just in case we get scattered all over. What happened here? That means the people at that time, they saw they were concerned about fights over territory. They were concerned about what most countries go to war about, turf. And they were concerned that all of a sudden, what happened before the flood, if we recall, one of the reasons why the flood happened was thievery, people stealing from one another. They were concerned the same thing might happen again. So therefore, what they did was, they did, if we want to call it, the first United Nations. They decided, let's build a tower where all of us are responsible for one another. And in fact, the Klayoker, one of the commentaries explained that the point of this tower was, but because we are all invested in this tower, we all have a responsibility towards this building, we will all come together here and have to act as one nation under one language and one rules, and therefore we won't be stealing from one another. Everybody's going to be responsible for one another. Like this will be a par uh, one partnership. They were trying to create the first cosmopolitan uh, country that everybody will have to come there, a one United Nations, if you want to call it. One kingdom for all people, one tower for all people, one language for all people. Everybody will be responsible to be there. What happens? They get together in a place called Shinar, in the valley of Shinar, which today is common day, probably Iraq of today, between the rivers of Pras and Chidekel, and they start to bring their plan to fruition. How did they bring their plan to fruition? There was one problem. In the valley, there's no rocks. Where are they going to be able to build a tower? So they had to come up with some type of new ingenuity to be able to create this tower. What did they do? And they decided they're going to make cement. But if this is the first time in history where they decided they're going to make something synthetic, bricks. Until then, when people built places or things, they had to use from the natural resources, whether it was the earth and the stone, combine it together and make it. They decided we're going to take the clay, we're going to take the cement and create bricks. Nice, formally shaped bricks to be able to build this big, beautiful tower. What happens? All of a sudden, you may think, well, God will say, wow, this is beautiful. Humanity coming together as one. United Nations, what can be better? Everybody's standing as one. And God should bless the harmony that's happening. Especially after the flood. They recognize what they did wrong. This seems like beautiful. One nation, one language, everybody communicating. This might seem the best thing since the flood. It worked. He destroyed the world. They learned their lesson. Everybody's coming together. But unfortunately, as we see, God responded very differently. What does God say? Look, they're not going to be one language. They're going to be one people. That what they're, that what's going to stop them from doing whatever they want to do? Let me go down, God says, and let me mix up their languages. 
let me destroy their way of communication, and that's it. And enter this tower. Now let's understand God's reaction here. When it came to the reaction of the people of the flood, what did God say? These people are destructive. We need to eradicate them from the world. Boom, wash them away. Drown them all. Everything that they belonged, everything that they had, animals, everything was destroyed. Why? Because the world was completely perverted, destroyed, and, uh, and in the worst way possible. We got to eradicate it. Over here, God comes along. No. What's the way that people get along? What's the way that people are able to become one? How do you create unity? It's communication. You communicate one with another, you're able to get along. You don't have communication, that's where all breakups and animosity and, and all the problems happen. The one thing these people had going for them was communication. They all spoke the same language. What did God say? Destroy the communication. You ask for a hammer, I'll give you nails. You ask for nails, I'll give you peanut butter. All of a sudden, was all things mixed up. If you don't have communication, there's no... There's no building, nothing's happening because there's no communication. And this way, all of a sudden, this whole thing broke up. There was no way that they were gonna build this tower and because they couldn't communicate, every family then decided to move to a different locale and the people of shame stayed where they were and that's how the Jewish people ended up in the Middle East. Then the people of Yafes, they decided to go to another place and that's what we call Europe today, they went west. And the Jew people of Ham ended up going to Africa, and that's what we have today, the people of Africa. Over here you see the three children of Noah spread out throughout the universe, became today what we know, all the different nations of the world. So this brings us to a few questions. Question number one, what did they do wrong? What was God's concern? Why did God have to go and destroy their plan? What was the problem here? What did they do wrong? What's the tragedy here? What was God concerned about? If they'll make a tower, what's the big deal? And not only that, why would God want to take something that the fact that they have the unity, that they're all speaking one language, and destroy them by taking away their lack of communication? Wouldn't God want that they should be able to transform, work on the ground? They were coming up with new ideas, new innovations. Wouldn't that be the most beautiful thing? Even more so, the Medrash even wants to suggest that if somebody were to look at the stories that are mentioned in this week's Torah reading, you have the story of the people of the flood and the story that happened 340 years later, the story of the, uh, the Tower of Babel. The story of the flood is an obvious rationale. They misbehave, boom, they were kicked out. You can't, you don't behave, you're thrown out. They misbehave, they were eradicated. But the story of the, the people of Babel what did they do wrong? How do you explain why God decided to mix them up? So there are some that explain. The Orachayim wants to give an answer and says that the reason is because God wanted that they should work with the world, not busy and occupy themselves with just building one structure. And that what he felt was their mistake. The same way he told Adam, that he would have to go out and do his work, and they weren't doing their work properly, so therefore he spread them out. Secondly, but that's still, we still have the question, why, <clears throat> by spreading them out throughout the world, would that help? What would that help? If they did something wrong, if these people of the generation of the flood 
have actually done something which is so terrible, how would it help by spreading them out throughout the world? On the contrary, spreading them out throughout the world is going to take these sinners and putting them in places where nobody ever sinned before. <laughs> You're making the problem worse. God should have killed them like he killed the people of the flood if they did something so terrible. Like the Orachayim asked the question and he says, if these people, if their problem was because they denied in God's existence, because they were trying to build a tower to go against God, why not kill them like the people of the flood? Why spread them out? Thirdly, what's the story about the stones and about the cement? From the whole thing that bothered God is that they're building this big tower. What do I care if they built it out of stones or if they decided to make it out of cement? The Torah purposely uses the terminology and tells us about the concept that they did not use stone and earth, but they went and they said, let us take bricks, let us take cement, let us take clay and make bricks. What's that so important in the story, how they actually built a town? And fourth, over here they say, let us build a tower and make a name for ourselves. What does that mean? What's that name? What was their point of it, making a name? What is that telling us over here? What's behind a special name that they wanted? And there's also something unique. That when God says, let me go down and mix these people up, God's name as well has changed. God has many different names that are used. Generally, God uses the name Elohim, which means our master, our God. Gracious Bar Elohim, the beginning God created heaven and earth. Mm -hmm. But over here, he changes and says, let Havaya, the name Yudke Vavke, talks about that name to come down and mix them up. Why all of a sudden when it comes to the generation and the punishment of these people that are being spread out, does he change the type of name that he uses? Nachmanides says that when you look at the name, the concept and the interpretation of the name, one can then utilize this to understand the entire story that happened here. So let's try to figure out what's going on over here. And it must be that the challenge that happened at the time was not just a challenge that the people had at the time that they were just getting along and building a building and that's what bothered God. There was something greater, something bigger that they were looking at. And even at the people at the time, they were building a tower, it wasn't just to be able to overcome thievery, making a United Nations and unity. Why were they building this big, massive tower? They had some godly intention, so to speak, that they were trying to combat. By building this tower, they were trying to create a solution. Not only a solution to get along with one another, but a solution to, so to speak, to outsmart and to overcome a godly challenge. What would that be? So let's understand this, first of all, from the aspects of the way it's brought down in Talmudic interpretation with its commentators. And then we will see it from the Hasidic masters, how they give a whole new angle on it. And anybody reading the story... You don't have to be the biggest genius to figure out and realize that the people who were living at the time that built this tower, they were from the generation, if you want to call it, survivors. They're just their grandparents were the ones who survived the flood. They realized that they needed to do something in order to avoid another flood. They were afraid that any day this same flood can happen to them as well. Yes, of course, God made a promise. He put a rainbow. We'll never flood the world again. But they weren't the greatest believers, as we can see. And they felt that the flood can happen to them again. Therefore, what they did was, they had to come along, and they had to figure out a way 
or they, in their own mind at least, to create a method that they can, so to speak, solve the problem or to keep God out of the picture. To be able to stop God from flooding the world again if they thought that's all possible. And the Talmud says it as follows. Because if you look at the words of these individuals, what did they say? Let us build a city, a tower, that its head is in heaven. And let us make a name. The Talmud explains that what they intended to do is they wanted to build a tower so tall, so high, this was in their thought what they thought they could do, they will reach the clouds, they will break apart our clouds with axes and, and hammers. This way, God wants to bring a flood again. There won't be any clouds to bring rain because they'll get rid of the clouds. That was their thought. That was one idea. That was one opinion. Another opinion says that there were actually three groups of people at the time. One said, let's make a tower that will live there. So if it comes a flood, we're going to be so tall, it won't affect us. Because we're going to be so tall on the tower. Another group said, we're going to serve idolatry, so the idolatry will save us, the idols. And then the third group said, we are going to be able to wage war against God in heaven, so therefore we need such a big tower. Regardless of what it was, all three opinions, all three groups, believed that this tower was going to spear them from God's wrath, should it come again to destroy the world. Now, over here, there are many different creative ways that they came about here to stop the flood. Number one is to try to stop the one who makes the flood happen. Number two is to serve idolatry, to, so to speak, to go to the competing, in their eyes, the competing God, that he'll be able to overcome and fight over that God. And number three is that, again, that they'll be able to, they themselves, to fight against God. Now, of course, all of these fallacies weren't going to help them. But let's understand what was in their mind. Let's try to break it down what was going on over here. Because seemingly, these are not crazy people who had these wacky ideas. They seemingly knew they were trying to climb above the clouds. How is this going to happen? So we can explain this by simply saying, in fact, from something more relevant until today, that if you look at their idea was all about controlling nature. It wasn't about controlling God. They believe that they have the ability to neutralize God by the fact that they will take control of nature. That means God wants to pour water on us and so to speak flood us. We'll find a way to control the clouds that no water should come. In fact, if you think this is out of the ordinary, it was actually 20, about 20 years ago, going back to 20 years ago, there was a headline where it says that Bill Gates, a headline to one of the newspapers, one thread, Bill Gates wants to be God. Mm -hmm. Why? Because then he invested a lot of money into a company which will avoid to diminish hurricanes. And this was came through that they would make the temperature because a hurricane comes through El Nino waves, which comes from the water, the temperature climate from one type of the water to another type of the water. And by him lowering the temperature in the water or whatever maybe, or controlling the temperature in the Atlantic, that would control the hurricanes that should be less hurricanes. In fact, in the Olympics in Russia, they would shoot things into the clouds and they would push the rain 
to a different area so it shouldn't affect the Olympics. They did that in China. So they have, even today, scientific methods. I mean, it's definitely not helpful for the environment. It probably does a lot of uh, chemicals in destroying the environment. But as you know, those countries aren't that uh, concerned about that, as long as it doesn't mix with their schedule. But there is, even in America, there's different planes that they can send into the clouds that can cause the rain to come earlier, come later. Science has already proven this with the people of the generation of the Haflug. So it seems far-fetched. How are they going to stop the rain? There is such a method today in science. But what was this going on over here? Where did they see their strength, so to speak, to rule nature? How did they think they can govern nature? How did they think that it can manipulate nature? Put it better. Because they were the first ones to discover bricks. Until then, you had to come onto nature, which was rocks, earth, and find some type of mixture to do it together. The moment they were able to come along and say, look, we can take clay, we can take water, we can take cement, and create our own infrastructure. We don't need God. We were able to control nature. The moment that they had this ability to create something synthetic, something that was not natural, they said, okay, we have now the ability to govern nature. Nature is not in charge of us. But it wasn't just creating bricks. Their desire was to see how we can keep God out of it. How we can forget about God. And therefore, according to the Talmud, as the Talmud says, there were two opinions. The opinion was that they wanted to serve idolatry. Nobody should bother them. Or they wanted to wage war against God. What does it mean to wage war against God? Meaning they were not interested in serving God. That God is not in the picture. We got it under control, God. We don't need you. We have nature. We have science. We, with the scientists, we're pretty brilliant. And God, take care of it yourself. You know the story about the scientist and God. Who says, the scientist tells God, I don't need you anymore. So God says, okay, we'll have a competition. Let's see who can create a human. So the scientist says, starts taking earth. And God says, no, 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 go get your own stuff. <laughs> but science they believed oh look we figured it out we have it we don't need God anymore because at what time what happened to the people that caused them to order remember God and if you think about it what causes people to think about God as long as everything is going alright you don't need God right seemingly all of a sudden there becomes a bump in the road God we need you we don't have to look so far. It just happened just a year ago, a year and a half ago. Look what happened when the pandemic came out. Everybody was praying and everybody was, uh, we got to pray to God that we get out of this. All of a sudden, the vaccines came. Oh, that's it. The vaccine saved people's lives. How did the governor of New York say? It wasn't God that did it. We did it. But what happened? Exactly what the people of Daflaga said. We have the vaccines. We don't need God. That means we saw today, day and age, the same exact thing. They had science and they thought science got it all figured out. What did God do? He sent another variant. <laughs> what did God show them? You think you got it all figured out? Your vaccines didn't help. You're another variant, then another variant. Why? Because. But what we see, the nature of people was the moment there was the vaccines, okay, we don't have to pray anymore. It's all taken care of. What's all taken care of? Where'd you go? Who made the vaccine? Who made science? They forgot about. And this was the mistake that happened then and the mistake that happens again. The mistake was not that they wanted to explore and desire to be able to make the world and find science within the world. They thought that science is the enemy of godliness while it's the opposite. Science is the blessing of God. 
The reason why people today live longer, the reason why we have medicine and all these things that are there is because God made within the environment, within the universe, there should be the concept of science. The blessing that we have today is the science that's given to us. And therefore, when Thomas Edison comes after all these years that nobody had electric, and Edison, after trying 6,000 different times and he wasn't able to do it, and finally he came and he got the electric bulb to work, is that against what God wants? On the contrary. God said, right now, now you can discover it. And now it's the blessing to this generation that you have electric, that you have air conditioning, or you have refrigeration, and you have all the things that the generations before us didn't have. It's the greatest blessing. It's not contrary to godliness. It's not manipulating godliness. It's not saying, now I don't need God. On the contrary, now I can serve God even better. The very fact that I have the internet is because today we can now serve God in sitting here in one place and thousands of people around the world can watch and listen to study Torah. So we utilize science to complement godliness. The mistake of the people of this tower was that they're using science to, to exclude godliness, to, so to speak, manipulate godliness when it's made for the contrary. The same idea is found when the Jewish people in, in the Talmud. And the Talmud tells us of a story. It's brought in the Medrash. There was a fellow by the name Turns to Rufus. He was the emperor. Came to Rabbi Akiva. And asked Rabbi Akiva, why do you circumcise your children? And Rabbi Akiva says, you know, like he's asking, why do you circumcise your children? Didn't God make the person perfect? What's the need to circumcise them? Don't you believe that God is perfect? And what he makes is perfect? So then why are you changing what God made? So Rabbi Akiva went. And so Rabbi Akiva went and he brought him stalks of wheat and a big, beautiful Danish. So he asked him, this is the act of God and this is the act of man. Which would you rather? And he explains to him. And he says, look, what we are doing is taking the act of man. So turns to Rufus, turns to him and says, listen, if God wanted that the child should be circumcised, let God create the child circumcised. So Rabbi Akiva explained to him and he says, the same reason why the umbilical cord is attached to the mother and we have to cut it to be able to bring the child into life is because God gave us the commandments that we should become better people. God gave us the commandments that we should be able to identify ourselves, that we should be able to refine ourselves. He gave us tools to be able to work with the world. As it tells us in the first commandment, go and multiply and conquer the universe. Conquer the universe. Use the world to be able to make yourselves better. Use the mitzvahs to refine your character. The reason why we have mitzvahs today is because mitzvahs makes us better people. In a plain physical sense. And circumcision helps the person become a better person. More edel, more refined. What was Turns to Rufus thinking? Turns to Rufus thought that what God made is complete and the only thing a human being in this world is here for is to enjoy it. Rabbi Akiva explained to him and said, no, what's the first basic mitzvah of Judaism is? That God wants every single one of us to be a partner in creation. How are we a partner in creation? Is that the very fact that God gave us that responsibility, that merit, that we should be able to be partners in creating the universe. That means in everything in the universe, we can have a part. And how is that done? Through science. 
Science gives us that ability that we are able to see the unique qualities and the greatness of the universe. Before science, did we know that the human being is made out of millions of atoms? Did we understand the intricacy in nature? Did we know about the galaxies and the stars and all the different things that are there? It gives us the appreciation that we start saying in our prayers to God who creates the universe. What is the universe? Millions and millions of atoms for every single part of your body. You have two specialists that study 20 years of medical school to figure out. It tells us the unique quality of the individual. Science helps us appreciate godliness. There was a great professor by the name of Velvel Green. He was a professor at NASA then later became a professor at Beersheba University. And when he became religious, the Rebbe asked him if he knows what it means, Hashgacha Pratis, divine providence. So he says, yes, I know the Hasidic interpretation that everything that happens in this world is by divine providence. And the Rebbe tells him, no, I want you to see it within science. He says, how am I supposed to? He says, when you study something in science, you know, you do a lot of research papers and all that stuff, and when you come across, keep a diary of when you come across of something where you say, wow, that's amazing how that works out and that works out, when two plus two equals four or whatever in the greater scheme of this physics that he was studying, mark it down each time. And he kept a record and he was able to write a book afterwards how he saw within the science, and I'm talking about in whatever science he was studying, even the words I can't pronounce, he was able to see the divine providence in, every, in one of those things. He tells a story that one time, um, he had one story that one time that he, when he had another private audience with the Rebbe, the Rebbe asked him what his work is. And he told the Rebbe that he's a professor who does research for NASA. So the Rebbe asked him if he can send him some of his works, some of his research that he's done. So he went home and he looked through his papers. Now he had to make sure things were not classified information. And things that weren't classified, he uh, decided to send to, um, to, to send to the Rebbe. But it took him time and he didn't send it. The next time, he happened to be in New York and the Rebbe saw him in the crowd and the Rebbe called him over and said, I had never got, um, I never got the research papers that you were supposed to send me. So he told the Rebbe, I was looking through it and it seemed like, you know, I don't want to waste your time with it. Uh, you know, my old theories that never came to fruition, why should I bother you with it? So the Rebbe said, you promised you could send it, send me the papers. So he got right, as soon as he got back, he sent the Rebbe his research papers. Of old, for the past 15 years, different papers that he saw that weren't classified, and he sent them in. The next time he happened to be in New York, he had a private audience with the Rebbe, and the Rebbe told him, I looked through your papers, and seemingly there's a contradiction from one of your reports that you said in year two, to what you said later on, seven years later, there's a different uh, contradiction. He's thinking, he says, first of all, he forgot even what he wrote. <laughs> to know that there was a contradiction, or even more so. So he went to look it up, and the next time he was in New York, he came to the Rebbe and explained that actually it was a mistake, what he wrote, and then, so the Rebbe told him, thank you very much for clarifying it, because I personally don't like contradictions. And what the Rebbe also told him, in a different time, he says that in general, that he asked him to write his, his essay, which was then later on made into a whole journal of the Torah and science, the Bora Torah Journal, which became the concept which is that people think that Torah and science are antithetical to one another, and on the contrary, to show that Torah and science complement one mm -hmm. another, and through studying science, you actually learn to become, you know, appreciate the universe more and all the different things that are there, as long as it's done with the right prism, knowing that Torah is the fact, and then you make sure that science fits with it, of course, and they're not antithetical, they actually complement each other. Over here, the, and the Rebbe brought this many times and discussed this idea 
that all the different things that are revealed in the later generation, the Zohar already predicted in the year in the sixth millennia, that there will be an outpouring of knowledge in physical and spiritual knowledge, which that coincides with the time of these teachings of Hasidism and the Industrial Revolution, which both of them came to the forefront at the same time that we today have things in our ability that was never in, in the last 2,000 years, 3,000 years, or ever since creation of the universe. And all of these things have to be utilized in a method to be able to use it, to be able to spread godliness. And the same way that there's many things in this world that can be used for, unfortunately, also for terrible things. The same idea that the Rebbe gave the example of nuclear power. Nuclear power can be used to energize and give energy to cities, countries, more than any other type of energy. And that same nuclear power can be destroying the countries. But we have to harness science to be able to utilize it for building and cultivating and making God's world a better place. The same things with the internet. With one click, you can reach every stupidity and dirty thing that out in the world, the university you can think of. And with one click, you have the access to the entire Torah. Today, people, an average teenager, is more knowledgeable, I'm saying not smart, but more knowledgeable than a teenager 25 years ago, 20 years ago, 10 years ago, with the information that you get with the tips of your fingers. You can have everything. We have to know how to utilize it for the purpose of Torah. With this we can explain what the Orachim mentioned before. Now why did God then, if God believed that these people were doing something so wrong, why did he kill them? Why did he just satisfy by spreading them out? Because when God saw that these people essentially were doing good to the creation of the universe by developing it and finding and making those bricks. The problem was that they're vision of the, using it to counter Judaism, this was the problem. The problem was not what they were doing, was their intent of doing it. So by spreading them out and causing them to then develop different places in the world and taking away that communication, you took away the intent, but the knowledge, the ideas can still be developed. And wherever they may be in the different places. Why? Because like if there's a university in one place who is counterproductive, you'll have a university in another place who will be productive. There are scientists that are atheists or trying to go against concepts of Judaism or Torah or godliness. You'll have somebody to be able to take the science and utilize it in the right way. That means the idea was good. We don't negate science completely. It's not like there's other religions. I think it's uh, Jehovah Witnesses or whatever it may be that don't do blood interviews and don't use doctors and everything. That's not what Judaism believes. Judaism believes, yes, there is science. It's a gift of God to this generation and we have to use it the right way. Take it a step further. The, fourth Chabad, the fifth Chabad Rebbe, Rabbi Shalom Dovber, in one of his monumental writings known as the Yedaita Moskva, one of the great uh, es esoteric discourses, he talks about the difference and the issue that the people of the generation of building this tower, they were called the Haflaga, the generation of Haflaga, which comes to me, comes from the word division. What the, the generation of the, of the Haflaga, of, the, of these people, they wanted to divide, they wanted to separate the difference between Havaya, the name Havaya, and the name Elohim. What does this mean? That we know, as we mentioned before, that God refers to himself in many different ways. And generally, the way God refers to himself in a time when he talks about creation and nature, he uses the name Elohim. Elohim with the same numeric value as Hateva, the nature. Therefore, when God talks about creating the universe, he says, Bereshis bar Elohim, in the beginning God created using the name Elohim. 
On the other hand, the name Havaya, which is Yud Kevavke, the name that numeric value of 26, refers to above and beyond nature. That's why when God takes the Jewish people out of Egypt, he uses that name Havaya, the way of miracles. What does the, what is the, the Hasidic interpretation tell us now? That what the people of that generation wanted to do is and say, you know what, there's God and there's God. There's God that's above and beyond nature. Fine, he's good. But the universe, science, is without God. We don't need God. We figured it out. Nature has its way of doing things. We don't need God in it. They tried separating God from nature. Which comes to the next step. Therefore they said, let us make a name. What is a name used for? Why does a person have a name? A name defines what a person is. A name defines who the individual is. You call a person a doctor because he's a doctor, a professor because he's a professor. You're giving them a name because their title describes, is an adjective of who the individual is. <clears throat> Over here they were saying, we are going to create a name. Meaning, because God works in two ways. In a way of nature and a way beyond nature. The people of the tower believed that God, which is in the way of nature, gave his abilities and his strengths. But you know, it's limited. He has nature, allowed nature to form itself, but in nature itself, and he doesn't go beyond it. And therefore, they felt that if we can manipulate nature, we can manipulate God. Forgetting that there's also God beyond nature. What was the taking apart, this, this causing them now to be spread out, causing them to speak different languages, was now teaching them one lesson. That Havaya and Elohim, the two names of God, which is above nature and nature itself, operate as one. They are not independent entities. Nature on its own is not an independent entity. In fact, nature is only a conduit to bring the miraculous events into this world. We are now at the end of the sabbatical year, so there's a story about a kibbutz. Just recently happened, it was reported. A kibbutz who kept who is very careful in keeping the sabbatical year, known the kibbutz Chafetz Chaim. And as we know, during the sabbatical year, you don't work with your property, which usually would mean, according to nature, that say goodbye to your property, because then you have to start plowing again, because property needs, the ground always, the soil always needs to be worked on. But they were very strict, they never worked with their soil. It so happened to be that they were making a tally of what their property, their ground produced, the year before Shemitah, the year before the sabbatical year, they made this year that they, when they checked out what it was, they made the most that they ever made. They double the amount of the produce that they bring in in our usual year, they brought in the sixth year. That means the year before the sabbatical year. That means they had enough for the sabbatical year as well. How did it happen? Science can't explain it. Merely nature is a miracle that we've become accustomed to. The sun coming up in the morning is nature. The fact that a seedling goes into the ground, rots, and because of that seedling comes out an entire tree with fruits, can you explain it? You're going to say, that's science, that's nature. Nature is God's way of bringing things into this world. It's a miracle. Just a miracle that we've become accustomed to. Over here, what the Torah is telling these true people, and by the Torah telling us about the making a name. And God said they want to make a name. What does it mean they want to make a name? They want to give this tower a title and say it's separate from God. That's when I'm going to make miscommunication. I'm going to show them that the only way nature can exist 
is because of him, the miraculous event in it. I'm going to show them that the name Havai and the name Elohim, those two names of God, nature and above nature, operate as one. They're not separate entities. You can't manipulate nature. Nature is godliness. This is probably the biggest challenge of our generation. Our generation has probably seen the most development in, every, in any other generation before us. And it is very easily for us to say, you know what? Things are, we got it under control, God. We have the internet, we have science, we have nuclear energy, we have the body, we make people live until they're 120. We can do whatever we want. Now artificial organs, all the different things that we figure out, science every single day is developing rapidly. And all of a sudden, there are many people that come today and say, as we've seen, people have said publicly, it's not God. We got it under control, we did it. The vaccine, whatever it may be. Where do people take? Where does that come from? That's the denial in godliness. That's the denial in thinking that nature has its own opinion. How does a Jew get the energy, have the fortitude to stand up against this great plague of nature, of science, thinking that it takes a life of its own? As we go back to the beginning of the Torah reading. In the beginning of the Torah reading, it tells us about the story of Noah. What did Noah do to protect himself from the floods of the world? He went into a teva. He went into an ark. The word in Hebrew, every word in Hebrew always has a multi-different multi, multi different terms. The word in Hebrew for ark is teva, but can also mean word. The Baal Shem Tov says, if you want to protect yourself from the floods of the world, if you want to protect yourself from the, all the outside elements so that it might be disturbing you, boy, go into the ark, that means go into the words of prayer. Go into the words of prayer, the words of Torah study. When a person prays, when a person studies Torah, they then surround themselves. They create a bubble that protects them from the outside influences. One of the great Hasidic masters of the Polish Hasidists, the name was the Magad of Kuznets, once used to say, he says the word Lashon, Lamed, Shin, Nun. Lamed stands for 30, the height of the ark. Shin is 300, is the length of the ark. And Nun is 50, is the width of the ark. Tells us, Lashon, which means your tongue or language. Telling us the power of the tongue, the power of speaking words of Torah, creates this ark that gives you the bubble and the protection to be able to protect you from the outside influences. This is the same idea. The they used to say a story, a very famous story, Rabbi Khan used to always repeat was a story once in the time of the Tzemach Tzedek. There was a fellow by the name Yossel. He was a very intellectual fellow. And this fellow, Yossel, was a, uh, a brilliant type of guy. And when they would go to the bathhouse, this fellow Yossel was able to talk about any subject you wanted. Like, you know, like you sit by the barber, you go into a taxi, you solve all the world's problems, <laughs> so too in the bathhouse. That's when they would solve the world's problems. If the market's going to go up, the market should go down. And if the king should, and the emperor, who should be run government, who's going to be the next president? Everything was taken care of in the bathhouse. And this Yossel was very enthusiastic and agitated. And he had his counterpart in the bathhouse that he would have argued with. And finally, he said one opinion of what if the market's going to go up and who should be the emperor and everything else. And his counterpart disagreed with him. So they made up and they said, you know what? After we finish in the bathhouse, you'll come over to my house, we'll have a piece of Google, and we'll sort it out over a piece of Google. <laughs> Yossel goes home after the bathhouse, but Yossel comes home, 
And Yosel comes home, he's not in the bathhouse anymore, but he's a person who studies Torah, he's a refined Jew. So he sits down, takes out all the books, and he's learning, and he's very into his learning, and all of a sudden he has a knock on the door. Who's the knocking? It's that Jew that he said he's going to come over for Kugel to hash out the problems of the world, to make sure they all work out. So Yosel looks at him and says, I understand, what are you coming for? He says, you remember, we spoke in the bathhouse, that we're going to come and sort it out. So Yosel says, no, 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 no. Before you were talking about Yosel in the bathhouse. Now it's a completely different yasl. When you're in the words of Torah, when you're in the words, you become a whole different entity. This is what this week's Torah reading is telling us. We were able to overcome the different wars. We were able to come over all the different challenges and the different generations before us. This, we, this generation has its unique challenge. The generation of the unique challenge of modernity, of science, not allowing us to think that science controls us thinking that science is antithetical to Torah, recognizing that within nature and with everything that exists in the world, God gives us the opportunity and says, be my partner, develop the world with me. And how do we do that? It's through studying Torah and praying with the proper intentions.